Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about Shion Sono, the director of such classics as Suicide Club, Love Exposure, and seemingly a hundred other films. Uh, I hope they serve beer in hell. <laughs> nope. <laughs> you're thinking of Why Don't You Play in Hell? Wait, so this is not the Tucker Max episode. Oh, no, it's not. Damn yet. it. A week of t- immersive Tucker Max research thrown down the drain. <laughs> and that will be the last time Tucker Max will ever be mentioned in pop culture for the rest of time. <laughs> no, we're talking about Shion Sono, a Japanese director who at this moment is probably the most prolific popular Japanese director. The new Takashi Miike. Yes. Is that fair to say? For all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, Takashi Miike in the early 2000s was the guy that you thought about when you mentioned like extreme Japanese cinema. Like, oh my god, can you believe how crazy Itchy the Killer is? Or Dead or Alive? Or Visitor Q? Or Audition? And also somebody, you know, Miike is like, he's made a hundred movies and and maybe five of them won't be so great, but then then one will come along and it's incredible. And then... And I think that right from the get-go, the big difference between Shion Sono and Takashi Miike is that Miike was always a guy that was happy to do whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. any script that came his way, he just loves to shoot and make stuff. And Shion Sono, every one of his films, except for a few, were written by him. Mm -hmm. So they come from a place of artistic need like I need to make these movies Mm. and a lot of them in the last few years were actually old scripts he wrote when he was like in his 20s that he pulled out of a drawer and decided to make like um, Love and Peace and um, Why Don't You Play in Hell as well now you I think like Shion Sono more than I do I do yes what is it about him that that you love I think that it's like his energy that really gets me and the fact that it's such a personal artistic statement and that you can tell film by film that like this is the same guy making them. Uh He uh, revisits the same ideas a lot and it's obvious that he shares a lot of the same passions that I do. You watch a picture like Why Don't You Play in Hell which is about a filmmaker who's crazy and just wants to make kung fu films with his friends and this is a movie that essentially could star me. Yeah. And, like, that's why I like it as much as I do. There's, like, musical numbers in all of his movies. They're very high energy and a lot of stuff is happening, which at the same time can lead to, I know that you've said, like, too much stuff. Well, yeah, and some of the thematic elements that recur in his movies are they are they're often you know young malcontents mm-hmm. you know uh, gangs uh, a, a lot of people who have sexual dysfunction mm-hmm. there is uh, obviously a lot of violence there are oftentimes secret societies lots with, of cults yeah cults and and even mainstream religions are often depicted in his films as cult-like so uh, reading about uh, Shion Sono growing up, he's one of those people that has like a mythology that he'll return to over and over again, especially when he's interviewed by English language um, journalists. In the article you sent me, he, he apparently had a very kind of normal middle class upbringing, mm-hmm. but then he ran away as a teenager yeah. to Tokyo. And when he was in Tokyo, he met this woman who was in her 30s and he was in his teens. And I guess he must have thought that she was a sex worker or something. And she went. he went back to her place 
place and she kidnapped him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, for, for the next night, he had to pretend to be her husband when she visited her family. And according to him, he actually stayed with her for a while before he finally went out on his own. And he says like he had no money. He had nothing. This woman had taken care of him while he was in Japan. So he ended up getting involved in like a cult like like. Well, he was at a cult first and then he joined a communist group. That's right. right yeah. Two separate, <laughs> two separate groups. So you can understand why like his films are often dealing with this idea of like mass groups of people and how they can influence in negative ways individuals. And yeah, troubled young men yeah. who are confused in the world and uh, yeah, maybe don't have the best grasp on their own sexuality. Even when he was young, you can actually see some of his short films like in 1985, he made a film called I Am Shion Sono and it's just like him in front of like a Super 8 camera kind of doing like a, a Jim Holtzman's diary type thing of oh, just God, like talking. It's, it's like Kim Ki-duk. Shion Sono's early films which include like Decisive Match girl dorm against boy dorm are like these blasts of energy and kind of artistic ideas. He was uh, someone who also loved doing all sorts of arts. Like he liked to do painting. He likes to do poetry. Some of his friends in some of the interviews that I read said that like they considered him more of like a monologue writer or Mm. a novelist, which when you watch films like Noriko's Dinner Table, you instantly understand or even Love Exposure where it's all narration and Mm. it's just kind of like taking you through these things almost like in a montage instead of like a scene-by-scene movie. And then in 1990, he made a movie called Bicycle Size, which was, again, about young teenagers who wanted to be filmmakers and, like, the difficulties they had. And that was the kind of thing that pushed them into being able to make other movies. And I talked about him in terms of coming after Takeshi Miike, but they ran side-by-side uh, side because he released Suicide Club, uh, Shion Sono's film, in 2001. And Audition came around that time as well. And I think Suicide Club is really his international breakthrough, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And he uh, loved to say that Suicide Club is a movie that all of Japan hated, but everywhere else loved. So, like, it showed him, huh, so maybe I can just make movies true to myself. And even if Japan doesn't like it, it will be a success internationally. That's interesting, because when I watch some of his movies, I I kind of feel like a certain calculation for the international market. Do you think so? Yeah. And reading about his life story makes me like him more, Mm -hmm. because I can definitely see the personal obsessions a little more. I can also see a part of him that's kind of like, oh, international markets love like crazy stuff from their Asian movies. So a movie like Love Exposure, the fact that it's four hours long, almost seems like bait for festivals. Oh, definitely. When I read about Love Exposure, I was like, well, I gotta see this. It's four hours long. When you hear it's a four hour long movie that has, um, yeah, samurai fights Mm -hmm. and geysers of blood and the Catholic Church and pornography and upskirt panty photos Mm -hmm. and boners, all that in four hours. Yeah, it's like, it's a dare, you know. At the same time, like, while he was coming up in this era of Japanese extremism, the movies that he was making were ones that I watched because there was always a barrier between me and them, like, around that time. Like, after Suicide Club, he made a movie called Noriko's Dinner Table, which is almost three hours long and is a semi-sequel to Suicide Club. But I could never get a purchase on its synopsis. Like, there wasn't, like, a hook for me. Uh So I didn't watch it until, like, this week. (laughs) And I found it to be, like, a very melodramatic kind of... It's parallel to Suicide Club, but not really about that. It's, again, about a topic he tackled over and over again. The idea of identity and what it means to be connected with yourself and what does it mean 
to be an individual and how do you define yourself? How do you give yourself meaning? And then he had other movies like Strange Circus, which was like a weird erotic kind of thing. And at that time, I'm like, no, I just want to see guys with the blood. Like, give me ninjas well, and shit like that. between you and me. <laughs> and then there was like Hazard, which he shot in New York on Super 16, mm-hmm. which is about like Japanese emigres uh, getting into crime and stuff like that. A very Takashi Miike idea because Takashi Miike is all about the immigrant, like the Chinese gangster in Japan or like a City of Lost Souls, which is all about that stuff. And again, there wasn't a hook for me as a teenager being like, give me movies like Versus, like crazy movies. <laughs> so it wasn't until later on with something like Love Exposure in 2008 that because that was so evident and like bait for me mm-hmm. that I'm like, oh, wow, I want to see this. So you watch Love Exposure again, all of its four hours, right? Yes. And I'd have to say, I did not like it as much as I did the first time that I watched it. Uh, neither did I, although I also don't dislike it. Mm-hmm. Shion Sono, I think the first film of his I saw was Cold Fish at TIFF, and I was very interested in it. That was the second film that I saw, and I saw it at TIFF as well. Yeah. And my reaction was essentially this is nothing like love exposure because where love exposure is crazy and fun and in your face, cold fish is cold in your face in the most unpleasing way. Well, it has a very slow build. Exactly. Yeah. And it, and his trademark, uh, wackiness comes more in the last Mm -hmm. act of the film. Uh, whereas love exposure is just kind of nonstop from beginning to end. Uh, I mean, I don't dislike Love Exposure. It's certainly not boring. It has a bit of an Edgar Wright quality to it that yeah. doesn't excite me that much. I, I guess maybe I should say what the plot of it is. And there is, <laughs> th- there is a, lo- a lot of plot, but the protagonist of the film is you who is a young Catholic boy, the son of a priest, which is not that common in Japan, a Catholic priest. His father you know, keeps making him go to confession and keeps making him confess sins. And he doesn't have a lot of sins. Yeah, and his father is making him do that because his father is in a relationship that he shouldn't be in. Mm -hmm. So as an extension of that, the father is trying to make his son feel bad Mm -hmm. by, like you were saying, confess his sins. And the kid's like, I don't have any sins. And his father is like, you're lying to me. And and he doesn't beat his son. He just doesn't connect with him, which his son, like, hates the most. And so the son realizes, well, you know, if I'm just going to get punished for not having sins, I might as well go out and commit some real sins. So he uh, hooks up with a gang of um, malcontents. Yeah, disturbed youth. And he learns how to steal and pick fights. And particularly, he learns how to do upskirt panty shots. Which is something that's very Japanese. Yeah, it is. And it's something that I have to admit, I found a little less hilarious on this viewing in this particular historical moment. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like the hilarity of it in the film comes from the idea that they utilize all these crazy moves to do it. So it's like these grandiose acrobatic things to take like photos of of women. And I mean, it's not good, but there's no sexual excitement that comes from it in the film. Right. Like none of the characters are like, oh yeah, that's so hot. Everyone calls him a pervert, but in fact, he never has an erection. No. And that's like a big plot point is that all him and his friends are more interested in getting the craziest photo Mm -hmm. As opposed to like, oh, the hottest photo, because it's more of a challenge that way. But in fact, uh, he does eventually get an erection because through circumstances too complicated to explain, he meets young Yoko, uh, but he meets her in the guise of Miss Scorpion, who is a a female character who he cross-dresses as. Who is also um, a character from a erotic Japanese series called The Prisoner. I can't remember what the, the number is. Of course, Yoko is about to become 
from his sister-in-law. Yep. Whoa. And so that's maybe the first 90 minutes of the movie. And uh, then... The title shows up an hour into the movie, like yeah. Love Exposure, the title. And it was at that moment when I realized this could be four one hour episodes. Yes, it probably <laughs> could. I mean, it's structured with chapter markings mm-hmm. and it's all about like different characters and the timelines go back and forward and like all the information is never presented linearly. So I, I didn't dislike this movie. Mm-hmm. I found it entertaining throughout. I know that a lot of the reviews I've read that are favorable to the movie tend to say the same sort of thing, which is, whoa, you won't believe this movie. It's got this in it. It's got this in it. It's got this in it. Blah, 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 blah. And to me, what that proves is you can put a lot of stuff in a movie. Mm -hmm. But so what? But I think that all that stuff comes from... Sono's obsessions because you're getting all the like the idea of religion Catholic religion and the way that it corrupts the way that family corrupts Mm -hmm. and the sins of the father kind of go down onto his children Uh, the idea of cults again because there's this cult called the zero cult the idea of identity like what does it mean to be yourself whether it be Mm -hmm. him cross-dressing as uh, Miss Mm -hmm. Scorpion or who the people are when they join the cult yeah, he has such a heavy touch for all this stuff. He does. Know? I mean, Shion Sono has never been a, I want to say, like... S- subtle... Filmmaker, except for maybe like something The Whispering Star. Okay. which Or some of his other art films. I feel like that when he goes all in and when he wants the emotions to really pop... The closest approximation that I can get is Andrzej Zulowski, the director of Possession, which is like... Everyone is screaming. Everybody is crying. It's right in your face. So you can pull away from that or you can go into it. Yeah. Like it depends on the movie and the mood you're in. Like I watched some of his movies this week and I was like, oh my God, no more. Like I don't want any more of this. (laughs) But it is an artist like expressing himself in a way like... I don't care if you think this is too big. I'm just going to put it all out there. And again, like Love Exposure, there's a lot of like problematic stuff in it, especially the way that it's presented very lightly. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes out of the time that it was made, like Mm -hmm. 2008, where it was like, oh, this stuff is okay. We can make jokes about Mm -hmm. this stuff versus now. And it is very Japanese. It is very Japanese. particular fetishes that it depicts. And like, it does tackle the idea of like, what does it mean to be a pervert? What does it mean to objectify? What does Mm -hmm. gender mean in all of these things? In a comedic way, but also a way that like in the last act, it becomes very serious and you either buy that stuff or you Mm -hmm. don't. So it's really up to the individual viewer. Like when I saw it the first time, I was all in. And this time I was a little bit more like, I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. But again, it's also interesting to watch when compared to the movies that Sono would make later on in his career because he has definitely evolved as a filmmaker and a lot of his films are tackling some of the ideas he took for granted earlier on and stuff like Love Exposure. Well, I think we both watched anti-porno this Yeah, week, we did. Which I also didn't love, but I, it, it, it's yeah. of interest. I'm not really a big fan of anti-porno. Like, I understand what it's trying to do, which is like... I believe it was Nikatsu wanted to restart their kind of erotic pink films. Yeah. And like when Sono got this assignment, he just made like a crazy expressionist, deconstructionist art film about like being in a pink film and what it means to be an actor or as a person. Yeah, because the first 30 minutes are a very exaggerated pink film. Mm -hmm. And then, you know... Which is tackling the idea of, like, being a model and a figure and someone who likes sex. Yeah, and, you know, at the 30-minute mark, the director calls cut, and then you find out you're on the set of a pink film where the lead actress Mm -hmm. is being very badly treated Mm -hmm. by everyone on the set. 
Um, and then you find out what particular sexual pathologies led her to get to this situation. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, you know, in a heavy handed way, it's like he's taking the dictums of this franchise, which are that every 10 minutes you need to have nudity. And then, you know, in between that, putting in a lot of stuff about how this genre objectifies women. Yeah. And that's something that I feel like he's tackled a lot throughout his films. There's a film that I really like called Tag that I remember it created a big um, brouhaha when it came out because people were like, this objectifies women. This does this. But when you watch the film, like whether he succeeds or not, because he's definitely having his cake and eating it too, Mm -hmm. is the idea that like Tag is about women as essentially video game characters going through these scenarios, taking on different personalities, and then being killed in brutal ways by men. Mm. There's even like a joke where she goes to the world of men and there's like a poster for a Shion Soto movie mm. up on the wall. It's as if he's saying like, yes, I understand that I do this and I'm trying to find ways to explain why I do this and how do you give agency to these characters and how do they become people themselves? Well, at the same time, you have a scene that has been endlessly gift where an entire school bus of schoolgirls is decapitated and you see all their bloody bodies and all the blood shooting in the air. So it's like a weird kind of like, can you do this while at the same time questioning the same thing that you're saying, oh, this is bad? Like, are you just an asshole at that point? By the way, speaking of schoolgirls dying, why don't we talk about Suicide Club, his breakthrough film? Sure. I wasn't sure if you had seen it, so I I just blew by it a little bit. (laughs) thank you. No, I watched it this morning. Okay. Um, This one in its opening scenes begins very arrestingly with 54, that's the exact number, 54 mm. schoolgirls on a subway platform joining hand in hand and just happily, very cheerfully jumping in front of a subway car and dying in a horrific way. <laughs> yep, blood splattering all over the place. And it's captured in that way that you feel like they didn't have permission to be on that subway platform. Yeah. Because like the super 16 footage like catches them out of the corner of the eye and uh, that sequence is great. So what we find out is that there's this a wave of suicides that are happening all over Japan, particularly of schoolgirls. They're just, you know, very happily uh, linking arms and jumping off the sides of buildings, and nobody can explain why. And we find out through an investigation led by uh, Ryo Ishibashi from audition mm-hmm. we, we find out through the investigation that there is a mass brainwashing going on through the twin forces of pop music and the internet this was so big at this time like every japanese horror movie slash drama tackled this like all about lily Chu. like the idea of like what does the internet mean to the teenage psyche. I expected that this would be really dated, but I have to say, now that there are all these incel forums Mm -hmm. uh, and groups online where people get radicalized in various ways, it seemed kind of contemporary. Well, it does that perfect J-horror thing, which is like, it gives you just enough, but then it doesn't give you the whole picture. So Uh you're like, wait, what's going on? And like... I remember when I watched Suicide Club for the first time, I was a little bit baffled at first because there's like these detours that I'm like, what is this about? Like after that big murder sequence, there's a lengthy scene um, where a security guard is like spooked by some ghosts or something like that. It's a baffling mix of tones. Yes. There are times when it's, you know, very... Uh, dark comedy mm-hmm. like the suicide scenes uh, there are times when it feels like a serious police procedural it's got Hitchcockian sort of suspense moments it's got like direct nods to like Dario Argento's Tenebrae where like a woman like rips through a bloody sheet like the woman in Tenebrae does and there's some you know that 
kooky Japanese surrealism, mm-hmm. particularly that abduction scene yeah. with, with the gang. Or like the film's final moments where you're like, wait, what? The final moments were very frustrating to me. <laughs> did you did you find that? Like, yeah, I, it's very kind of oblique and abrupt. And it's like, wait a minute, what about... <laughs> what about this stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's what's perfect about like these Japanese horror films. Something that I didn't like when they were coming out and something that I've come to terms with considering that I made an entire feature-length film that is like a slight homage to like to Shion Sono and other filmmakers like Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Watching Suicide Club this time, I realized like some shit that I stole. There's a whole scene about with people in like pillowcases that like Impossible Horror is a whole secret from that. I was not thinking of Suicide Club because I had probably seen it a decade before, but it looks so similar to it. So it's like the same ideas are being tackled. Like there's nothing particularly physical that's frightening in Suicide Club because there's no monster. I mean, there's the indication that it could be these people doing it, but it's not really them that are doing it. Mm -hmm. What's scary is these people that suddenly come to a realization that they should commit suicide. And it's not in a moment of sorrow. It's not in a moment of like, oh my God, this is all meaningless. It's all smiles. And then they just kill themselves. Yeah. And and in a way they're, it's not like the social contract is exactly being broken mm-hmm. either. Like, you know, it's not a mass shooting. People are just deciding of their own free will to do it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's an interesting thing to tackle. It's, again, about identity and what it means to be a person. And that's what the movie is questioning over and over again. Just like all of Shion Sono's movie question, even something like Love Exposure is like, who are you as a person? Do you define yourself through religion? Do you define yourself through the deeds that you do? Mm-hmm. There's another movie called Himizu, which came out in 2011, which tackles like a lot of the same themes that Love Exposure did but not in a fun way. Like, it's kind of miserable. But at the same time, it's shot in that love exposure style. It's like whip pans and crazy camera moves, Mm. but it's not fun to watch. And I think that's like a perfect mirror image to love exposure because it's doing a lot of the same ideas, but tackling them in a way that's much harsher. Mm. So that like, oh, this is fun and, you know, enjoyable. That edge is dulled. And so you can view these concepts from a different angle. And I think that's one of the best things about Shion Sono is that, In the 2000s, he suddenly got the opportunity to make a lot of movies and to tackle these personal themes from different angles. And while he's repeating a lot of the same stuff, he is kind of evolving his thinking of it. Mm. And I was not surprised to learn that Shion Sono, when he made all the most famous films that he did, was kind of a mess of a person, that he was always drunk and that like... He was essentially only defined by these movies that he was making. There's a documentary I watched and you see him at his home, which is just like a mess. <laughs> and it's just like garbage everywhere. And he just sits down at a little table and starts writing. And his uh, partner is interviewed and she says that like Shion Sono can't do anything for himself. Like he can't do the laundry. <laughs> he never cooks his own meals. It's almost as if he's in a state of arrested development that all of his movies are about as well. It's all like teenagers or even adults, like, realizing that there is no such thing as, like, full responsibility. You never go to a different level. And he's been kind of been frozen in that spot. <laughs> and those are the movies that he keeps making. And, I mean, like, that documentary is also uh, problematic because his partner, who stars in Guilty of Romance, she stars in a bunch of his films, like, bursts into tears talking about how it was difficult, the experience of making movies with him early on, because he would push her so hard. Oh, dear. And it shows, like... A filmmaker that like all he has is films like this is everything that he has and that like 
I don't know how badly he treats people, like, or how badly he did treat people. We could only view the ones that are like, oh man, aren't these crazy? This is what <laughs> Japan is all about. Like, why don't you play in hell? Or a favorite of mine, Tokyo Tribe, which is this Ugh. insane two and a half hour Kung Fu, the Warriors rap musical. Yeah, imagine you're watching Tokyo Tribe at Midnight Madness. Loved it. You Applause, know, craziness. It, it's 3 a.m. and you're falling asleep. But that's a movie as well that starts with like a really problematic a treatment of a woman who is like her shirt's ripped open and you see her breast and it's supposed to be like fun. Mm-hmm. And like, that's troublesome. What you consider like the movie tag that he would make like around that period, which is like, he made the whispering star, this Tarkovsky esque kind of walks through Fukushima and the kind of like ruins that happen after the big um, disaster. Mm-hmm. And then he made a movie called The Virgin Psychics about like kids who get boners and want to see women naked and stuff like that. <laughs> so there's this duality of this person who like does personal projects, but at the same time will go into his most like vulgar, like crazy. Um, I like a guy who has uh, problematic impulses and wrestles with them on screen. So you're <laughs> over kind of, and over again. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're, so you're definitely selling me. <laughs> but what's interesting is that he has slowed down. He, he released like four movies in one year. A lot of them like great to classics. He made one that was never released in North America that I love called Love and Peace mm-hmm. about like a nerdy uh, office worker who just wants to be a musician and he has a little pet turtle and then that pet turtle gets flushed down the toilet one a day and he's so distraught that he writes this amazing pop song called Love and Peace and it becomes a huge hit and it becomes a rock star and during that time the pet turtle ends up in like the sewer of lost toys which are all these toys that can talk and stuff like that and the turtle turns into a like puppet turtle because it's like giving the its owner powers to become a rock star and it gets big into like a giant keiju sized monster and it's so much fun and it's a stealth holiday movie so watch it around (laughs) christmas time it almost feels like he reached that point where he was doing all the stuff he wanted to do and the market in the other countries is like, well, we don't want these movies anymore. That fad has passed. Yeah. So now he's at a point where he's like, well, I don't know what to do now. His next movie is supposed to star Nicolas Cage. Interesting. Yeah. Um, um, I would have been more excited for this seven or eight years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what that movie will be. He's one of those uh, filmmakers, I feel, at this point that's at a crossroads where, like, the movies he can make, either he goes, like, the big budget route, like Takashi Miike, who has essentially given up the dream of making, like, little films as much as he can. He just makes manga and anime adaptations now. Mm-hmm. Like, can Shion Sono do that? Or can he only make personal films? Like, he's in, like, a weird place right now, and I'm very interested to see in what direction he's going to go to. I think he should spend some time with his wife. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know... What the relationship is now, I heard somebody at a film festival who spoke to him said he actually quit drinking. Oh, good. Uh, And he's like sobering up because of the relationship and stuff like that. And that I don't know if he went back on it. Like, that's not something that gets cured right away. And does that have anything to do with him stopping making movies? Like, was it a fuel of some kind? Or was he in a place in his life where he was miserable enough that he can make all these films? And now that he's happy, he's like, I don't need to make them anymore. I just wish the best for him and his family. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. And I just hope he keeps... Being able to make movies and that, I don't know, like to continue to evolve, right? Yeah. Like, so he doesn't need to make The Virgin Psychic over and over again. I am curious to see what he does with Nicolas Cage, even though I think I can probably guess. Yes, I I, I think I can too. It's called Prisoners of Ghostland. And the 
I'm expecting some shouty cage. Yeah, the synopsis doesn't excite me. A notorious criminal must break an evil curse in order to rescue an abducted girl ugh, who has mysteriously disappeared. Uh, classic cage material. Yeah, no thank you. I mean, speaking of selling out, he did make... Uh, the Shinjinku Swan movies, which is a really problematic popular manga series about a pimp and okay. like the <laughs> prostitutes that he works with. And he's made two of those films and they were like mid-budget studio pictures. <laughs> and then he made Tokyo Vampire Hotel for Amazon. So oh, very like, nice. he's on that like that step, I feel of like, just give me the big budget properties and I'll just make them. <laughs> I'd like to thank uh, someone who actually sent in their interview with Shion Sono. Uh, his name is David Hoegnuman, and I know I'm saying that name wrong. Um, it was an interview that you can find at 3ammagazine.com if you just search Channeling Chaos, an interview with Sion Sono. It's a lengthy interview uh, right before Sion Sono was going to make Lords of Chaos, a film about uh, black metal in Norway. He ended up not making it. Somebody else did. The movie's already been made. And it's real like deep dive into where he was at that point of his career. So thanks again uh, for sending us that article, David. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And the first letter is from John Paul McKenna. And it goes, Hi, guys. I'm going to lead with an assumption, dangerous I know, that I'm guessing there was some level of irony involved in choosing the title of the podcast a few years ago. Not really. Uh, I call it the Important Cinema Club as a joke. But I didn't mean it ironically. It meant What's it more the distinction there? to undercut what we're talking about. Ironic would be if I was just talking about trash every week. Right. And the idea was, I want to do this podcast with Will because from an outside perception, he seemed like a smart dude who likes stuff like Jean-Luc Godard. I quickly discovered that while Will is a very smart person, now nah, he likes the same garbage I like. So <laughs> I like Sean Lugadar too. Yeah, you like Sean Lugadar too. But it, it wasn't going to be a conversation where you're going to be like, mm, but this week we're going to talk about Alain René. I don't know about this David Dakota or Fred Olin Ray. No, no. But your choice of the theme music, though, would suggest a certain amount of... Uh, uh, of irony? Yeah. Well, it, I, I actually... And also the irony is that it's like you and me, two dopes. Yeah, right, I mean... Talking about it. The idea was that I wanted a French name for something and it was a club de cinéma important. Right. And it was an idea of like, okay, I want to talk about like important movies because the original idea for this podcast was that I have like trash with laser blast and I want to talk about like, you know, stuff that uh, you would find in like an Andrew Serres book or like uh, the Italian New Wave and stuff like that. And it just evolved into talking about all of these filmmakers but treating them with respect, like not like, ah, they're so bad, is right. like we find value in these things. And the music is just to let you know, like, okay, we're not going to take this too seriously. Right. I don't know if that's irony, because irony would be like, hey, we're calling it important, but it's dumb and it doesn't matter. <laughs> and that it's more like, uh, we're just treating this with like, I don't know, a softer touch. Or The letter continues, listening to Lizzie Borden express how your approach to her work made her feel comfortable enough to open up about working for the human shit show that is Harvey Weinstein felt like a very important thing for her and a real insight for all of us listening. The even-handed, I want to say humanist, but I'm not sure if that's the right word, approach that you guys take to obscure and intimidating subjects matter is important. Keep up the good work, John. P.S. Justin speaks French, right? You should get Godard next. Well, uh, I, I, hey, if Jean-Luc wants to come <laughs> on, we'll have him. But I think that what the letter writer said right there is 
the main idea that I had when I did this podcast is that we do take, I think humanist is a good word, which is like, we don't put ourselves above the material that we're talking about or try not to. Right. Well, I think we have done episodes on things we don't like, but yes. I don't think we've ever done an episode on something we think is not worth knowing about. Yeah. Cause then why would we talk about yeah, it? So that, I guess that's the distinction. Thank you very much for your letter. And our next one is from Felix Dembinski. And he goes, Hi, Important Cinema Club. In a recent episode, you mentioned Nollywood films, and you said that you struggled to find any. Well, there are many hundreds on YouTube in English, seemingly uploaded legitimately. Nollywood films have been a subject of interest for me and a friend since we stumbled across a UK TV channel devoted entirely to them. We were channel surfing at night looking for something about to start, and we found the film Painkiller, which is available on YouTube which was a Nollywood production that we had to see. The production problems were immediately evidenced. The audio and editing were choppy and the camera movement and framing were quite poor. It was very strange to see something of that quality on broadcast television. Every scene was an interior in fairly small rooms other than some deserted cutaway shots, which were shown repeatedly, which combined with the strange editing and sound gave it a claustrophobic, nightmarish tone, which would put Tommy Wiseau's The Room to shame. The opening song gets played in almost every scene of the film, sometimes twice. It became a running joke between me and my friends just to sing some lines from it because it's been ingrained in our memory. There were some positives, though. The acting in the dramatic moments, in particular the last 20 minutes, had a Fassbender or Zolowski, wow, Zolowski getting mentioned again, level of <laughs> intensity. We've dipped into other Nollywood films since, but they've only been a curiosity. There's not much information or reviews online for Nollywood films. We tried to contact the film's director on Facebook, but got no reply. And I'd love to see one that's free from all the production problems. I don't think that's going to happen. I but, feel like the production problems are probably part of the point, right? Uh, well, it's probably what they have to work with. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's interesting uh, what this letter writer says about Nollywood films, because I actually looked into it after we talked about it briefly on the podcast. And a lot of them are shot in English mm. and you can find them on YouTube. But again, the issue is like, I don't know what to watch. I'd like to know, like, what are the top five Nollywood movies of all time? And I would go and watch those. Like, what are the important yeah. ones, the most popular ones? Because I think the most popular is a good way to approach it, because then we can see what resonates with people and what's mm. important. But again, they're one of the countries that makes the most movies in the world. So it's difficult to know, like, well, where do I start? Mm. So if anybody out there knows where we should start, like the top five Nollywood movies, let us know and we'll check them out. I would love to do an episode on it. Yeah. And other, like, countries that we don't really talk about their films that much because Nollywood films the way they're made the fact that they are so rough I think goes into why there's so many of them and the fact that where they play it's accepted because it's never really existed before then mm -hmm. and it would be something really interesting to tackle from a uh, middle class North American perspective mm -hmm. uh, the letter writer continues I'd love if you discuss giallos as a topic, particular Umberto Lenzi's. Not being as obvious as an auteur as Bava, Fulci, or Argento, I feel he gets unfairly overlooked. Love the show. Keep it up. Kind well, regards, Felix. Boy, I'd love to talk about Umberto Lenzi. The thing is, though, <sighs> we, we really have to space out... Uh, the stuff we like? <laughs> well, I mean, no, no, let me be honest. I think Umberto Lenzi is an okay filmmaker who made a lot of films. I think he's... As a giallo guy, he's... I wish I liked some of his movies more. He made um, Cannibal Ferox, yes. which is... Did we do an episode on Cannibal? We talked about it on a Patreon episode at one point. That's yeah. right. But he made like films that are iconic in the Giallo realm, like Eyeball, which has an insane cover with like uh, the Grim Reaper ripping a woman's eye mm -hmm. out. He made Spasmo, Orgasmo... Uh, a lot of films that are considered Orgasmo, giallo, not the Trey Parker. Not the Trey Parker movie. Yeah. He made a lot of films that are considered giallos, but when you watch them, most of them that starring Carol Baker are more psychological thrillers because mm. they're like two or three characters. Uh, but he 
is one of those guys in Italy that worked in everything. He's like a real Joe D'Amato type. Mm. I think a little bit more competent than Joe D'Amato, but there's even less of a personality in this film. Mm. I remember reading an interview with him in Spaghetti Nightmares, and he said, oh, this movie, it's great. There was like 50 costume changes. And I was like, well, that's how he considers <laughs> the movie being great or not? So... I, there's something there, but yeah. I wish I was more passionate about him. Yeah, and and thing is, we can't we can't just do filmmakers like Umberto Lenzi <laughs> over done, and over again. We've done plenty of filmmakers that we got. We have to have like great filmmakers if too. <laughs> I was gonna do like an Italian exploitation tour next. I would 100 percent want to do Sergio Martino. I think he's my favorite out of the people that don't really get talked about that much. Even though a book was just published about him by Arrow Press. Uh, called All the Colors of Sergio or Martino. Mm. He's the guy who made 2019, After the Fall of New York, a like handful of amazing giallos like The Case of the Scorpion's Tail, All the Colors of the Dark, and most famously Torso, mm. which has like the crazy American trailer. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to do someone probably around Halloween, we will do Sergio Martino. Uh, but this show will run until we die. So I'm sure Umberto Lenzi's on the deck at yeah, some point. why not? <laughs> I mean, I feel like we shortchanged uh, Argento and Fulci when we did like a 20-minute episode on both of them very early in our run. That is shameful. Yeah, that is. You know what? <laughs> Patreon, here we come yeah, around okay. Halloween. And our last letter is from Jasmine Chorley Foster. And she goes, happy long weekend. <laughs> Thank you, since, I guess. It's almost over now. Since Tiff is approaching, could you offer some recommendations on what to see, what to avoid this year? Especially for those of us who may not be high-flying media insider celebs like yourselves. Uh, yeah, we're high-flying <laughs> media celebs and insiders. Uh, Will said that uh, he applied for a press pass under Important Cinema Club, but the last minute he went, why am I doing this? Well, what I remembered as I was applying was, you know, I'm a man with a job and a girlfriend. Yeah. I don't have a lot of time to be, like, <laughs> spending a week at, at a film festival. And Jasmine goes, P.S., how is the campaign to get Will into TIFF parties coming along? And how can ICC well, Nation support this effort? That I'm very interested in. You love in. going to TIFF I would love to go to TIFF, but this year I'm I'm tired of going to parties that just people like me and Justin get invited to. I want to go. Yeah, to you're ones. tired of going to these parties. You're really excited about, and then just standing with me in the corner and not talking to anybody. Exactly. What I want is to go to a party that has George Clooney at it. I want to meet Margot Robbie. I want to meet Meryl Streep, perhaps mm-hmm. if Matt Damon is there, I'd be happy to meet him. These are you know just a couple of the names of people who uh, I would be interested in meeting. Uh, Lady Gaga, if she comes again, I'd be happy to meet her i'd fit her into my schedule so if anybody has the hookups for will you know give us an email and i'm sure will would appreciate it that's right and as far as movies that we emma want, stone i would meet her yeah you know. anyone right yeah anyone as far as movies that we want to see coming up man i don't know like i glanced at the tiff list of what's about to play and i went uh when they're all released i'll make a list i guess i'm sure i'll see movies until like I'm annoyingly going, oh, I'm so tired from seeing all these movies. Oh, like, that's, that fucking shit. That's the worst. Well, I mean, they haven't announced it yet, but I'm assuming they'll probably play the new Godard. Ooh, the new Alex Ross Perry as well, because it shot months ago. I hope they play the new Steven Soderbergh movie that he shot on his iPhone again. Uh, it's a drama about the NBA. Yeah. Uh, that sounds really fun. Or like, maybe it'll just play at Telluride. Yeah, who knows? I don't know. Uh, when it comes out, I'm sorry we don't have an actual answer to your question, but once the list is released, we're going to do tiff episodes around that time i feel here is my suggestion Mm. go to all the roy thompson hall galas soak in (laughs) the stars the winter garden 
if the ticket is less than $75, it's not worth your money. Well, go see all the Midnight Madness films that have not been announced yet. Just buy your tickets. <laughs> just go see those ones. Those are my recommendations. Not just because it's programmed by our friend Peter Kaplowski. <laughs> but I have a hot tip for a movie people should see, even though it's not a tiff. And that's a little picture called Impossible Horror. Which is going to be playing in New York. Wow. Yeah. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> It'll be playing as part of the Scary Movies Film Festival at the uh, Film Society of Lincoln Center. Hold off. Yeah, the, the big show. Lincoln Center. It will be. And it's going to be playing on August 19th at 9.30 p.m. Folks, no excuse. If you're an important Cinema Club listener in the New York City area, go see Justin's movie. Go wish Justin well. Ask, where's Will? <laughs> yeah, uh, and I'll go, he's right up on screen. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right, because you can see both of us. You're going <laughs> to, wow, just think, you're going to see my face up there in, what, the Alice Tully Auditorium or wherever the hell it is. Yeah. They're showing at, like, uh, where, like, actual famous people have stood and done, like, Q&As and stuff like that. Boy. <laughs> My dream has finally come true. <laughs> and I mean, if you're in the area, that Sunday they're playing like a bunch of movies on 35. I think they're playing like Stuart Gordon's Dagon on 35. They're doing like an aquatic horror thing. And that weekend they're playing um, the great, and I say great very lightly, interesting Shockwaves, which is like the Nazi zombie movie mm. with Peter Cushing, which is like hypnotic in like how slow it is. <laughs> and they're also showing Alligator on 35. That's a great movie. And Dead Call, which I've never seen, the Nicole Kidman movie yeah, yeah. with Billy Zane. But what's really important is Impossible Horror at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. So if you live in America... You should see it. You have no excuse. <laughs> That's probably the last place it'll play in America. Probably. Well, not necessarily. Uh, well, yeah, we'll see. Well, yeah. Once the um, studio exec comes running up to me after the screening, he's like, I want to book this film. I'll give you $10 million. By the way, I, I don't know if you can hear, but it's uh, thundering and lightning outside. <laughs> I think uh, an important cinema club first. Yeah. Because it's a spooky atmosphere of impossible horror. <laughs> so this week on our Patreon... We talked about kind of gray market shorts made by fans, essentially. Basically, early viral videos that mm. used to get traded on VHS before uh, the internet was around and would often be at conventions. Stuff like Apocalypse Pooh, which is the Apocalypse Now Winnie the Pooh mashup, or Bambi Meets Godzilla. Or uh, the classic Batman Dead End. Ugh. And if you don't know what we're talking about, don't look it up. Just listen to the episode and listen to us talk about it. You'll know all about it. Oh, and Hardware Wars, of course. Hardware Wars. And we also slipped in a little uh, heavy metal parking lot where talking about stuff that would get traded a lot on VHS. Mm-hmm. For $5 a month, you can listen to us talk about that. And you could also get our entire back catalog as well, which is like almost 80 episodes at yeah. this point. Yeah. And you get four new episodes every week. And you become a true Important Cinema Club member. When you become a Patreon subscriber. Soon people will get their membership cards in the mail. I'm not even joking. I actually got a laminator (laughs) to make membership cards for the Laser Blast Film Society. And I'm going to figure out a way that like people can like opt in to getting one for the Important Cinema Club. Let me know on Twitter if that would actually interest you. Wow, between the Laser Blast Film Society and the Important Cinema Club, you're like a cottage industry, a real Kevin Smith. <laughs> like you run so many like secret societies. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> Remember folks, the password is Fidelio. <laughs> <laughs> so, next week, speaking of doing the important stuff. Oh god. <laughs> um, we're going to be finally tackling Transmorphers. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry. By that I mean Android Cop. No, no, no. Uh, Paranormal Entity. Yes, Titanic 2. All those movies that we just mentioned. Snakes on a Train. Yes. Are from the company called The Asylum, which mm. people don't really talk about them that much anymore, I feel, like other than the fact that they make the Sharknado films. They were talked about a lot, like, a decade ago. Yeah. And they're the people who made the Mockbusters, which were rip-offs of famous films that were coming out to trick people to pick them off the shelf and to watch H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds instead of the Sp- Steven Spielberg version. Right. Uh, Movies would often star C. Thomas Howell mm-hmm. or Tracy Lords mm-hmm. or people like that. And I'm not even interested in making fun of it. I'm more interested of like what makes these movies tick. Like, how did so many of them get made? We want to watch, like, the best of them and to see, like, why were these popular beyond just people getting tricked? And what is a template? Like, these producers worked on every film. Is there some authorial vision in it? I would say probably not. (laughs) But, like, why aren't they Roger Corman? So I think we're going to watch Transmorphers. Yes. And then I think we're going to try to figure out which one is the best of these movies. Man, I've tried before. And, like, I just could not find a concrete answer. And the one that I did end up watching, I'm like, this cannot be the best. Okay. There's a Mark DeCascos one that's a ripoff of I Am Legend called I Am Omega, which I'll watch, even though I remember watching years ago and go, ugh, this is bad. But my tastes have broadened since, like, I'm more forgiving, I feel. (laughs) Uh, There's, like, a Michael J. White one called Android Cop. Like, this sounds like catnip to me, but I've seen these movies and they're not good. Why aren't they good? Like, why don't I like them? That's what we're going to be digging deep into. Oh, boy, this is going to be painful. Do you remember, like, when Mega Shark vs. Giant Octopus came out and, like, the internet was ablaze with it? Like, clips everywhere. People were like, I gotta see this movie. You know, that movie and Sharknado and, you know, Sharktopus, mm-hmm. their online reactions One of those things together. are not like the others. Well, Sharktopus is a Roger Corman joint. Yeah, that's right. And the other two are Asylum joints. Yeah. Oh, I forgot that Sharknado is an Asylum film. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Do you know that uh, Stuart Gordon made an Asylum movie? Wow. Was it any good? It wasn't a mockbuster. It was called King of Ants. It's super, like, grim and gritty. And I don't think we'll watch it for the episode, but I'll probably talk about it. Ah, there's a little teaser right there. Okay. All right. So until then, uh, you can send us letters at pointcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. My name is the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening finally saw the new Mission Impossible this week. That would be Fallout. You said you couldn't remember the last time you were that excited to go see like an action movie, right? I think this probably speaks more to like the current cinematic <laughs> yeah, landscape than right. does Mission Impossible Fallout. But yeah, I was very excited to see it and I found it totally satisfying from beginning to end. I will say that I completely forgot the plot of Rogue Nation. So I Oh, was, you were a little bit lost? I was a little bit lost at times, but eventually I figured it out. I forgot who Ilsa was. It's like a James Bond movie, right? Where yeah. it's like, you can go, oh, I guess this character is close to uh, Tom Cruise. Yeah. Why yeah. even call him Ethan Hunt? He's playing <laughs> Tom Cruise. Uh, and this is a movie that, like, the stuff Tom Cruise does in this film, you're I, you know, maybe I'm getting more on your side of, like, the suicidal kind of impulses. Yeah. Because... This film does what I felt no film could ever do, which is make a helicopter chase exciting. Oh, yeah. Because helicopter chases in movies is actually one in Mission Impossible 3. Super boring. Because mm-hmm. the problem with this kind of stuff, it's the same problem with Jets, which is like, 
the geography was very difficult to capture and to have like close calls and stuff like that. And they figured that if you put a human body in actual physical danger in the movie, that's how it becomes exciting. There, there are so many different flavors of action mm-hmm. in this movie. You know, you've got this great car chase. You've got a, a, a long shot of him jumping out of a plane. Yes, uh, that's done in like three long takes, even though it has the problem where it's like, this could have been 10 takes or so much CG in the scene. Yeah, but but as I was watching it, I was thinking, it doesn't even really matter if, if it's if, being yeah. faked or not. Because you know. It, it works. Yeah, that scene is amazing where he jumps out of the plane and has to save Henry Cavill. And like the best thing about that scene, it's not even about fighting somebody else. Mm. It's about him getting to a destination, doing something as a ticking clock happens, which is something that you rarely see in movies anymore. I love it. Or that bathroom fight scene. So good. Within the first 15 minutes Incredible. too, where they're just like, all right, we're just going to give you what the whole ad campaign has been hanging its entire thing around. And it's going to be brutal and awesome. And it did the best thing where like the ad campaign lied, like they edited footage to misrepresent what was going on. I'm not going to say what's actually going on in that scene. But like, if you watch the trailer, you go, oh, these are the two people fighting. And that's not what it's about at all. You remember when the Brad Bird Mission Impossible came out and it came out after a period when Tom Cruise's career was kind of on the downswing and they got Jeremy Renner to be in it. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of saying, well, th- yeah, Tom Cruise is in it, but don't worry. He's got a whole team around him. And I, listen, we all know you're a little disenchanted with Tom Cruise now, but of course, Cruise walked away with the movie. Yeah. And I feel like the movies have figured out an incredible way to sell themselves to an audience that is uh, suspicious of Tom Cruise. Well, you know, what's interesting, and we didn't talk about this in our Tom Cruise episode, is the first Mission Impossible film is all about Tom Cruise. Like yes. The Mission Impossible series is about the team, and that movie just gets rid of the team in the first act, mm-hmm. and just it's just Tom Cruise on the run. And number two is Shameless. It's just Tom Cruise all the Tom, way through. Tom, 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 Tom. Three is getting back the mission kind of team idea, but the other like three films, they're just figuring out what exactly makes these work without making it like, look how cool Tom Cruise is. Well, what they figured out is that the audience is suspicious of Tom Cruise. The audience thinks Tom Cruise is crazy and weird and they don't like him. And so what these movies and their marketing campaigns say is, yes, you don't like Tom Cruise. He's weird and he's crazy. But we're going to make that work. Yes. We are going to use that craziness and, and make it work for you. All the best scenes in Fallout, like all the crazy stunts that Tom Cruise does... They work on that Jackie Chan level where you know how Jackie Chan would be like, oh, Bruce Lee, he like Mm -hmm. hits like this. And I hit and go, oh, that's what Tom Cruise is playing at in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like when he does that famous jump that he broke his foot on, that they kept the shot in the movie. You get to see him hobble off. That's what you're watching that scene. There's that meta textual like, oh, like I can't believe he just broke his foot in that shot. Yeah. And the way the movie is now totally sidelined the romance Mm -hmm. angle. Like I feel like that's playing to, you know, an audience that doesn't trust Tom Cruise in a love story anymore. Yes. So what the movies are saying is, this is where Ethan Hunt and Tom Cruise, like, merge into one, where it's like, yes, Tom Tom Cruise's last wife literally had to escape, you know, in the middle of the night with their child. So, fine, Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, they can't have kids anymore, because they're all about entertaining you. But the groundwork that Fallout is laying is, Tom Cruise cares about people. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's what, like every decision in the movie is about, which Mm -hmm. is like Tom Cruise cares about Ving Rhames so much that he's willing to sacrifice this nuclear device. And Tom Cruise cares about you, the audience, so much. (laughs) That he's essentially going to kill himself. Yeah. Like, that climax 
where he's dangling from the helicopter, which he runs up to, jumps on like the dangling thing from it, and then it lifts up into the air. <laughs> like, I'm just watching that and going, I'm sure there's safety cables, like keeping him from dying, but just watching it like this, or him trying to put his foot up, like to yeah. get onto the landing as he's like a thousand feet in the air. So crazy. Safety cables are not. Yeah. I mean, I, I would not be able to do it. <laughs> no. Or him, like, flying the helicopter as well. And, hey, we got our return of that classic Mission Impossible motif, Tom Cruise hanging off the side of a mountain and climbing. <laughs> was, uh, if you notice, this movie does every gag that the previous Mission Impossible films have done, but do them in, like, a slightly different way. I actually, like, listed them in my mind as I was watching them. I can't remember them all. But it does stuff from, like, part four from part like three from part like the helicopter part three out of helicopter chase yeah part two the hanging from the cliffs it's as if like christopher McQuarrie is like i just want to one-up this stuff like just slightly Mm. and also ground them in the way that he kind of shoots his action stuff but what about like the hype around this movie like why why do people have to hype it i think it's just because like you know it if it's the best action movie of the year, which it probably is, yes. I think it's just because most action movies aren't very good. But like the greatest action movie that I've ever seen, like that, that's well, crazy talk. It's not the greatest action movie I've ever no. seen, but, but it's like, is it the best action movie we've seen lately? Yes. Yeah. 